Welcome to the Intriguing Beings podcast with me, Ru Chater. Season 2, episode 13 with Clinton Feline. Welcome back. It's good to be recording another one of these. Um, I hope everyone's doing okay. It seems like the world went to hell in a handcart since my last episode. Um, hopefully most of you are all out of lockdown and back enjoying your lives as much as you can with certain limitations imposed upon them. Um, we're still in Wales, which interestingly is locked down pretty tight at the moment. So officially we're not allowed to go kite surfing or um, mountain biking in the mountains or do very much of anything. Everything's based around being at home and not traveling within a five mile radius still. But with a bit of luck, we might hear some news on that this week. But it's fine. It doesn't matter. We've been busy with work, had a lot of stuff going on with the kite surfing magazine. We've just published issue 81 of that. So I recommend if you're a kite surfer and you're into that, check it out. As ever, it's online totally for free. So well worth a, a look. There's a good article in there that we put together on kiteboarding being dangerous. One of the key reasons why we were told we weren't allowed to go kite surfing during the lockdown was because it was a putting putting extra risk on the emergency services and things like that so there's an interesting study that's been done by some dutch gentlemen and we look at the details around how dangerous kiteboarding is so i recommend that as a bit of reading for you if you're interested Anyway, on to this week's episode. Um, I'm sitting down and chatting with Clinton, who, if you don't know who he is, he's the gentleman who's been heading up the Airrush brand for the last eight years. He's from South Africa, and that's where the Airrush headquarters are based now, over in Musenberg. And he's built an interesting career for himself as a kind of product designer, um, slash tinkerer, slash experimenter, slash ideas man. Um, and he has some of the most interesting design concepts that I've come across within the industry. And he's certainly someone that's not a tr not afraid to try something different. Um, and we talk a lot about that in the podcast, which was recorded uh, last year, just at the back end of last year at the AWSI event in Hood River. I think it's one of the last ones that I recorded there. I think I've just got one more from that trip to publish. Um, hopefully lockdown is going to ease and that'll mean I can start traveling again. I know a lot of people have started up podcasts, doing them online um, with Skype. And people often ask me, you know, why don't you use Skype as a medium to, to have a chat and do the podcast? And I just find it lacks the quality and also the feeling of being in a room with someone. Um, I find people open up a lot more when you're sat right next to them and you're looking them in the eye and you're having that personal interaction. And it's one of the things that I probably enjoy the most about recording the podcast is getting to sit down with people. So I've still got a few in my bank um, ready to publish. So I'll be rolling those out over the coming weeks and months. Um, but more importantly, hopefully as lockdown restrictions ease a little bit, I'll be able to travel again and record some more live podcasts with some more interesting people. Anyway, without any more chat from me, let's get into episode 13 with Clinton. Good morning. I'm currently sat in a rather lovely house in Hood River with an amazing view of the spot. It's a beautiful place. If you've never been here, make sure you do. Fantastic mountain biking, lots of kite surfing. And at the moment, just about everybody who's anybody in the kite surfing industry is in town for the AWSI event which is showcasing all the new 2020 product to the american retailers and dealers and we've also had the 
GKA, Global Kite Surfing Association, um, meeting here as well. So there's lots of people to chat to. So I've been trying to rack up a few podcasts while I've been here. And at the moment, I'm sat on the sofa with an interesting gentleman who I've known for a few years now by the name of Clinton Feline. And he is working, heading up the Airrush brand um, based over in South Africa, but spends a lot of his time traveling. And we've had a few interesting chats over the years, and I thought it'd be quite good to sort of share those with you. So, Clinton, first question to you, which is where I normally go before we disappear off into some rabbit hole of conversation. Um, how did you get into the water sports scene? What was your sort of first? Uh, yeah, I, don't, I, I guess when I was a, a, a kid, I had a fascination with sailing, you know, yeah. like just as a, as, a, you know, as a child reading books about, you know, people going sailing and, and uh, for some strange reason i got i asked my my dad was a book distributor and i asked him to get me a book on sailing and he brought back this basically a bible of sailing called aerohydrodynamics of sailing and i as a 13 year old just Just puzzled over this for years and a lot of it was way beyond anything i understood you know like that's a little bit you know kind of some of the memories i have of of what got me interested in in I guess water sports, wind sports, and um, yeah, that was that was probably earlier earlier interest, and and then you know just from there, meeting friends who you know windsurfed and then sailing Hobie cats, and you know, yeah, just like and where were you growing up when this was going on? Where well, was I was born in a place called Durban, which is on the which is on the east coast of of uh, South Africa, and that's yeah. where my family was from, and then my my dad got transferred inland to a place called Johannesburg which is about 600 kilometers inland but you know we'd be going back home to you know on on every occasion we could but I spent a lot of I mean most of my childhood inland basically 600 k's from the ocean so kind of landlocked yeah landlocked and then having you know being exposed to the beach a lot but then always having being, it taken away <laughs> yeah and having it taken away on a regular basis so I guess I got an appreciation for it you know which a lot of people who grow up at the coast don't really see what they have you know yeah they take it for granted because yeah. it's just there all the time whereas you had it had it taken mm-hmm. away and then we're like I need to get back to that yeah, absolutely yeah and Durban's a, a quite a, a sort of I've never been but I've got a good friend who lives there and he constantly tells me I need to go to Durban because it's amazing I mean it's a lot warmer than Cape Town right the water yeah, is tropical, around. Really. It's tropical yeah. and it's windy and it gets great waves and things like that yeah. so from reading this book on sailing when when was your sort of first experiences of actually getting into the ocean and well, you know, besides from, you know, besides from surfing as, as kids already, you know, which was kind of something that was a kind of a life skill, you know, you kind of learned it and it was, you you know, I was never really particularly good at it, but it was just something we all got into. Um, and then, you know, getting into sailing and, and then windsurfing and, and at some early point, you know, borrowing boards and then, um, and then deciding with a friend of mine, a childhood friend that we wanted to build our own board. You know, that was, I think we were like 15 and we were like, okay, we're going to build our first board and sketched it up on a piece of paper and argued about whether it should have single wingers or double wingers <laughs> or, you know, like all the very important stuff like tail shape. Um, and you obviously had the experience from reading the book. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so, and then just, you know, they built up first board in the in the garage and friend's dad helped us. And you That's know, a pretty cool thing to do at a young age, to build a board because... You know, we often hear about shapers and we use all these toys, but I know a lot of people that use equipment. I think I know one person that's had a go at building one himself and it's still half 
finished in his carriage and he hasn't gone the full length of it. It was a long process. I mean, this, and, and yeah, we like needed a surf form and like we'd read about a surf form and we had to try to find one. And then we shaped it and then I think it took us months actually. And then we got all our favorite brand stickers and, <laughs> and then we stuck stickers all along the bottom of the board before we laminated it, glassed over them. Perfect. Took it out in the sun once it was done and it delaminated in five minutes. Because <laughs> the resin hasn't soaked into the blank. Yeah. So, it's just like <laughs> it's like, so that was our first lesson in R&D, I guess. That's awesome to have started at such a young age. Who was the first person to ride it? I, I can't remember. There was just, we had, uh, yeah, it was, it was uh, I think that wasn't really the focus. The focus already then the was process. the process of building it, you know, the and actually, my, my friend went on to become a really good product designer, and the other one's a great photographer. So we, like, that's it's good uh, childhood. Good kind of grounding for your careers. Yeah. That's really interesting. And did you, you know, when you were building that board, did that ignite a passion in you that you thought this is something I want to be involved in for the rest of? I mean, we just grew up as as makers, you know, like we we raced BMX, and then we saw some American magazine about. BMX sidecar, so we like got some poles and decided to build a sidecar and to weld it one up onto the side of the one of the BMXs and proceeded to nearly kill ourselves. And so that was kind of the, you know, what just what we we'd done, you know. So it was a it was a good grounding. I guess is that sort of spurred a little bit by being in South Africa and not being close to, you know, accessing these sort of things. Because I've spoken to a few people over this series, and some people have grown up in sort of weird and wonderful places like New Zealand, where you kind of had to do it all yourself because no one was importing stuff or getting things there. Was that a kind of similar feeling in Durban, where it was tough to get hold of things? Yeah, or? I think in South Africa, I mean, it's always hard. You know, we were very, we were very in awe of what was happening in Europe, and, and yeah. You know, so we, we, and and in the US, so we, you know, we, we would. Uh, go to the local news agent and steal magazines because we couldn't <laughs> afford the imported magazines. We'd shove them under under our jerseys and walk out of there. Um, and, and, you know, then just kind of absorb whatever we could. So, you know, whether it was like we would get BMX magazines and then later on windsurfing mags and surfing mags. Um, and, yeah, just learn from them and, and always you know, kind of be frothing over the products and go like that would be so cool and maybe yeah. we should build something so yeah it was it was a real mixed bag of uh, I, I guess i come from more of an action sports you know, uh, background and grew up skating more than you know and kind of go through I, I don't know if most kids go through it, but like you know racing bmx and then getting into skateboarding and then skating vert and being part of that whole scene growing was really amazing thing to experience and then and then you know early days of windsurfing getting into that and yeah, it was just kind of a migration through through the different sports. Yeah, that's brilliant. I like that. I like the fact you're sort of just making things and putting things together and having ideas and you know processing it. A lot of people have those ideas, but a lot of people don't then carry them out. You know, there's a lot of people that go, oh, "I want to do this, I want to do this," and then you go, "Why don't you do it?" And then they never get over that hump. So to a young age, go, oh, "Let's build a windsurfing board and actually go and create one." That's quite an achievement, I think. Yeah, I was very lucky. I mean, I had uh, like parents of you know, um, friends uh, one one was an inventor the other was a, um, a very successful um, you know, um, record producer and so you know he would be tinkering away in the EMI recording studio and we would go there and mess around with all the stuff and, yeah and you know and he would be involved. building things and you know just like that that was the culture of, of uh, 
And this is a backdrop when there was no internet as well, which is an easy thing to forget now. Like back then, it's, you know, like you say, stealing magazines, that's your only link to that world. It's not like you could just go on YouTube and watch a video of how to make a surfboard or anything like that. It's, you know, you're really having to sort of try and get that information from people, from sources and things like that in those days. Yeah, ab- absolutely. And I mean, that's, that's also a good thing for me today, that kind of culture of just asking as many people as you can and learning is, is still a, I think is a good fundamental. Yeah. yeah. Good, good grounding for what you went on to do. Yeah. And then you've been heading up Air Rush for quite a long time now. How did you get involved in that? Um, yeah, I had a, a product design company in South Africa. That okay. was kind of, I ended up through a, a, a bunch of things that I was studying and then ended up designing products while I was studying and then kind of be, did that. That was kind of the only thing I'd ever done as a, as a job. Um, and I... I'd been working with an accessory brand for de- developing a bunch of accessories amongst working for other companies. And then I kind of always wanted to have, you know, as a designer, you get quite frustrated sometimes with the way brands present your products, the way they take them to market, the way, you know, they, um, so I've kind of always had this idea, well, ultimately I'd like to have my own brand. And then you you've know? got the control over it. And then at least if it doesn't work, it can be your fault, you know? So were you having to teach yourself like CAD and things like that as a product designer? Did you go to university to study that or? No, I was studying um, advertising. Uh, uh, I wanted to be a copywriter when I was, yeah, when I was was young. Um, And then, and kind of while I was doing that, I was um, competing in windsurfing and I started testing for a windsurfing company called F2. Yeah, I remember F2. I was around, I think it was around 18. and then that came from, I used to build my own boards. And like, yes, I couldn't really afford to build boards. And I had, so I met a, as a legendary shaper in South Africa, Jonathan Palmer, and he's a famous big wave surfer in the day. And he was a shaper. And then I asked him to, if he'd shape my board for me. And then uh, he finally agreed. And then I said, well, I need somewhere to build it. Can I use your workshop? And he finally agreed. And then built my board there and, kind of got along well with him and then this brand was doing product development and then you know, they, I kind of just hung around them and then they asked me to test some, you know, I did a bit of testing and then over time I did more and more product testing for them. So, and I did that while I was, yeah, while I was studying. Um, and then, yeah, I just kind of got more involved with F2. Yeah. Um, just through osmosis really just and that was back when windsurfing was kind of big money wasn't it it was a yeah it was a, a good big that, sport then. that was a very good grounding because i i got to work with at, at that point like they had won multiple world championships and there, there was like yeah. beyond on quebec yeah they were the biggest brand yeah. board brand arguably in the business really they yeah were huge. yeah and they, so there was well they were in the tussle you know with the other brands so they'd with the from a competition side, you know, working with with a guy called Peter Tolman. Yeah. Then I made I met him through. I went to Maui, got to meet him, and he was working for F two. And then he didn't. You know, we kind of saw this computer thing coming, and and kind of I was the only guy who really was using a computer. And so then Peter said, "Well, would I help him to develop board shaping software?" And I mean, I I didn't really know a whole lot, but I kind of just. <laughs> Sort of just hustle. Okay, yeah, I can make this work somehow. Fake it till you make it. Exactly, and and so um, yeah, then and then I started working with him. I did that for a couple of years, um, and then you know got got more experience building boards, um, and then more experience on the computer side, and 
was working with a company called Maui Sales. They were actually building all the F2 sales. So I got to, there was a guy, Niels Rosenblatt, who's still around in yeah. the industry at, at Nash and a guy called Barry Spanier. They were yeah, doing all the sales him. and I'd somehow just go and go into the loft where you weren't really allowed and just find a corner and quiz them about things and learn and ask them and help them. And, and uh, yeah, and, and you know, Barry was another one of those guys who was like those existential thinkers, you know, he'd like, and uh, that, was, that was a cool cool learning curve and that was I think it was around 18 or 19 got to hang out with all these guys That's watching an incredible them basis, building, isn't it? building products and then seeing great athletes like the guy was just basic you know, just won five world titles and you know it was a machine you know? he was unbeatable with Dunderbeck yeah. back in the yeah. day wasn't it it was just like turn up and win everything was it Anders Bringdow yeah. his nemesis that never won yeah, anything so it was, it was just was... like an amazing rider <laughs> in his own right but just at the wrong wrong place at the wrong time because Bjorn was crushing it yes yeah, and that was, and that was like a, another good, you know, just being lucky in the right place at the right time, and and uh, yeah, that that was a great learning curve as well. I guess that background of asking questions and tinkering with things helped you to maybe have the the balls, I guess, to walk into the sail loft and and quiz them about things like that and be forthright and get that knowledge from people because you're you're asking for it, and generally when you ask someone a question, most of the time they'll answer. But a lot of people don't ask those questions. They're too frightened to sort of put themselves out there and put themselves in that situation. Yeah, so it's like, it's kind of sometimes you wish you paid a little bit more attention when you're young as to why you did things. You know? <laughs> but it's just a, an interesting way of learning. Yeah. That's awesome. And so when you were competing in windsurfing, did you get to any kind of high level at that? Were you I mean, I was the world tour? Or? I was South African champion a couple of times. Um, and then I, you know, I would kind of, get into you know make semi-finals and the occasional final in in, in windsurfing you know but I, I kind of did the tour for a, a couple of years and as I got into my second year I did I realized I didn't really enjoy this whole thing of hanging around on the beach it Waiting wasn't for really wind. for me and I, you know I was a bit hyperactive and wanted to do things and so yeah I and mean, basically everybody was focused on doing other stuff and partying and meeting girls and and that was kind of interesting, but you know, it wasn't really what drove me. And I realized that relatively early on, um, and then I you know, decided I need to take a different path. Yeah, well, you always struck me as quite a focused individual. You seem quite like, yeah, I've got a, a goal in mind and that's where I want to get to, which I guess is what led you to setting up a product design company in South Africa and thinking, okay, that's something I want to do. Yeah, I, I think, being you know I've always been like a bit of a dreamer you know when you're a kid people are like oh, you're such a dreamer you know but when you get older and you go well that's actually a good thing you want people who are trying to do things that are not just what everyone else is trying to do and yeah and I think that still stays with me you know trying to create something different and staying outside the yeah. box a little bit yeah not always following the path yeah it's a balance yeah and so when did you first become involved with Airrush? You had your product design company. What year are we talking when you... Got yeah, so this is around 16 years ago, 15, 16 years ago. Um, so the brand had been going for a little while then? Yeah, the, the, I mean, Airrush was started in, in Hawaii by uh, Keith and Karen Baxter, the Baxters, who had a company called Hawaiian Proline in, in windsurfing. So I didn't know them then, but they... So they started Airrush. And then, um, yeah, I, I didn't paid that much attention I'd just been you know spoken actually phoned the current CEO of the company and and just through mutual friends said to him look I've, I've got a great idea I want to start a, a brand 
um, I've got an accessory brand. Um, you know, would you be interested? And he and he said, well, yeah, I would be interested, but I've kind of just bought this kiteboarding company or taken over this kiteboarding company. I'd also just started a sale brand called Severn. Yeah. And and they are in Australia. And uh, and then he was like, well, why don't you just help me with these guys for a, for a year or two? See uh, how that goes. See how that goes. And uh, yeah, it sounded like an adventure. So I packed up the family and, and moved, moved to Australia. Yeah. Oh, fantastic. Where was that? On the West Coast? Or? Yeah, in Perth. Yeah, 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 which is the place to be if you're in Australia and you want to go windsurfing, right? It's windy. Yes, um, amazing warm water, great conditions. Um, yeah, that, that was, so we ended up, that, and that was my my first step working with uh, with Airosh, was running Airosh from, from Perth to um, and then from there, it's just been a, you know, a journey. And I remember Aerosh back in the day, you had um, you know, people like Colin McCulloch working on shaping and stuff like that. There was yeah. some pretty good stuff coming out of that brand um, at a time when, you know, the sport hadn't really defined itself back then. It was still, you know, there were crazy ideas coming out left, right and centre. And, you know, you guys always seem to have some pretty decent products and certainly in the board design, almost well ahead of your time. Yeah, I think the defining products, you know, there, I mean, there were some really good ideas early on. There were products like the Trio, which was the first three strut kite. And, you know, they were, for example, we battled to sell that kite because it was three struts and everybody's like, well, three struts, the thing's not going to be yeah. stable. Like, how are the things just going to collapse, you know? So, that, you know, that was already quite a, a forward-thinking product. But I think for the brand, there was a, a, a four-line kite called the Lift that was a really big big step just as I as I got involved and then and then I also you know got to meet Colin um, you know as I started with the brand and, and we got along really well from from straight up you know he was um, he was a very interesting guy had a lot of very strong opinions and there was a lot of opinions in the company which <laughs> I was the new guy you know it was like walking in there and it was like yeah, these these was that quite a difficult thing to manage i guess from sort of running your own product design company being sort of in charge then becoming the new person where there's a bunch of egos and you know you're trying to forge a path for them and they're not wanting to maybe go in that direction was that like a whole new sort of ball game for you to get engaged in absolutely like the first two years were, were the two most difficult years of my life actually you know, really like moving to a new country yeah dealing with fish out a of bunch water of people who who have a very strong idea about what they want to do and not buying into it and them wanting you know kind of having wanting a manager and then coming from a design background and going well i can manage this as much as you want but i think we you know we had like a you know trying to drive a product direction and that was that was quite challenging yeah uh, and so that that was uh yeah, that, and and they yeah that was probably a yeah, from my from me personally, it was a little bit of wheel spinning, as we call it these days. You know, yeah, like trying to trying to get things going and not going anywhere. Yeah, <laughs> doing a lot of hours and sort of thinking, what's going well, to happen. You'd have moments like you know, Colin and I got along well, and so you'd see like we did like the first pro toy together. Yeah, you know? and like for us, that was a. I mean, that, that was, was a phenomenal board, wasn't it? Yeah, I mean, it's it's amazing. I met met a lady the other day. She's like, I want to show you my board. This is the best board I ever had, and she whipped out a Pro Toy, like a one one nine Pro Toy. So, um, yeah, that and yeah, that was cool because he was building products for Aaron. Yeah, and and I had actually, while I was working, um, you know, doing all the Pro Limit design, which is one of the brands, was well, the brand I'd been working on in Cape Town. We'd actually signed Aaron 
onto onto Pro Limit in the early days. You know, so like I had a good connection with Aaron there, and I, you know, thought extremely highly of him as a as an athlete and a focused individual. Um, yeah, so the, you know, there was that was that was the first fun project that I did with, yeah. with Colin. And he was winning world championships yeah. that sort of time, wasn't he? So yeah, that was quite yeah. a cool thing to be involved in. Yeah, it was. It was very nice to see the the relationship between the shaper and the and the you know, the athlete. Yeah. And how long did you spend in Australia for that? I was there for over five years. Okay, so yeah. that's quite a long time yeah. to up sticks and move the family over. Yeah. Well, it was. It kind of you know got to. I felt like I had to get something I'd, I'd originally thought of going for three years but then you know didn't feel like i'd achieved anything and and i uh, kind of really wanted to move it along further um and then kind of got to a point where i think it was after around six and a half years between australia and thailand where i just wanted to go home you know like yeah. i kind of really wanted to get back to cape town and do you know and, and carry on with product design stuff and so was that an easy sell for them to say you know i want to take the airrush brand back home to Cape Town and run it from there or was that a tricky thing to sort of manoeuvre? Well it wasn't the plan I, like I told them look I really loved working with you guys and it's been an amazing journey and as when I phoned you in the beginning I want to create something of my own um, so I'm going to go back to Cape Town and carry on with that um, and then uh, I can't exactly remember the details of it but I think Spence said well you know, do you want your first client, you know, from, and like, how about you just take the air rush stuff and carry on doing that? So that was, uh, yeah, and then I got involved, got an equity stake over time. And then, yeah, then that, that kind of, yeah, it kind of ticked the box for me. Of, or, and I, you know, I really loved what we'd built. Yeah. Know? And it was difficult because air rush and the sale brand at like Severn had been growing and my, my heart was really in kiteboarding. You know? Yeah. And so it was, it's kind of something that I wanted to focus and, so yeah, with, uh, that that wasn't a hard decision at all. It, it was, was a great. fairly straightforward one, and one yeah. that's worked out, you know, amazingly well. I guess when you look at it now, I mean, you've got the stunning offices down in Musenberg um, that you set up not that long ago. You must be feeling like it was a sound decision all that time ago that you've done the right thing. Yeah, I, I think so. I mean, uh, for me, Cape Town is 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 an amazing place, and and actually the people, you know, the the resources there is something that is exceptional. I mean, we've got a lot of outside designers, you know, but also there's there's a lot of of people around, you know, that are very passionate about about water sports, and you know, there's a lot of creative, like a good creative industry and a good technical industry. You know, so there's, I think it's for me, it's always been very underrated. You, know, yeah. you can get a lot of things done, um, and you know, there's good education system, so you can run a decent company there, um, and I always felt that that was a real, you know, that was the potential of, of the of the place. Is it hard, you know, what's the hard things about being based in Cape Town? I guess there must be some downsides to it perhaps or? Um, well, sometimes getting kite, people who kite, you know, like getting, because it's an expensive sport. Yeah. You know, so like for, for us, is is not a lot of young people who kite. So like, you know, getting a lot of youth, you know, we try to, you know, have a program where we have, young staff coming in all the time and one of the things we try to hire as many kites as we can or at least athletes you know people yeah. who surf you got to surf kite whatever you do like you know you've got to be passionate about some kind of sport you know that's and that's that sometimes can get challenging just because a lot of the sports we do are quite elitist yeah that's you know? a difficult thing and i think i know 
as I was saying, the guy from Durban is a South African F1 importer. And whenever he's at the meetings, it's always just like for him, it's like, the guy's like, you know, no one's going to be able to afford this equipment in South Africa. It's, it's fine if you're in Europe or America, but, you know, people aren't earning that kind of money. And the exchange rate is so crazy and it's going up and down all the time. It must be sort of, you know, quite tough for the locals to, you know, be involved in these kind of sports that we, we take for granted a little bit, I guess. Yeah, and, and I think that's, a, you know, one of the things is like growing up with surfing. is like surfing is an easy sport. You need a wetsuit, maybe. Board. You know, and you need a board. You and know. it can be any old beaten up heap and you yeah. can still have fun on it, right? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and, and I think that that's something that holds the sport back. And that's, you know, so for me within Airrush, I've always tried to champion building really good entry-level products and well, really good price point products. Yeah, and that's you know, been a big thing for us is to continually drive the price down of entry level. You know, to really take that category and see like, you know, how can we make it a bit less expensive every year and how can we make the products better, you know, for the first time customers. It's, it is strange because people end up not, you know, there's like almost an aversion to something that's too, you know, well, that's the, that's the stuff for That's people. the beginner cheap yeah, stuff. that's the beginner cheap stuff. That. And I'm like, well, that's actually the best stuff for the money. Yeah, yeah. For what you're paying, <laughs> you're getting you're really paying, good value. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's, it's, I mean, that's an interesting thing in customer psychology, really. You know, it's like if you make, they almost don't trust you when you build something too inexpensive. You know, which is kind of nuts, isn't it? Because you know, if you're trying to help them out at the end of the day and get them on the water and give them access to this incredible sport that can give them a lot of joy, and they're just looking at you in a distrusting manner, like. <laughs> Yeah, it's, it's, I mean, it's quite a balance. People, you know, a lot of the times is, is they, you know, they, they put a lot of self-worth to the products that they use. And like for me, that's, that's always, I mean, I think the thing that I'm inspired by is like this intrinsic um, happiness that you get from, and I think you can get it from a product. You know, people go, how do you get it from a product? And I say, well, if you play guitar or you ride motorcycles, then you'll know it doesn't need to be the newest, flashiest thing to be of value. It can be like the oldest beat-up, Thing from from <laughs> twenty years ago, and it's even more valuable. Yeah, you know, and and I think so. There's a lot of good examples of of uh, products out there that are not just there because they're the latest greatest thing from this year. Um, I and mean, that's also why we pushing so hard to get away from model years. And yeah, industry. I mean that was going to be my next question because you sort of led on to that. I mean, it seems like I remember from my early windsurfing days where it was just like this constant evolution of equipment and I guess when the sport is new there is that constant evolution but then it felt like it got to a time in the 90s where you know windsurfing gear was kind of where it was at and I think it was actually starboard probably changed the game with that go board and making boards wider and shorter and that kind of pushed things on a little bit but that sort of constant drive for having new equipment almost felt like it you know, killed windsurfing in the sense that people were just like, well, the kit's getting more expensive, I've got to buy a new kit every year, this just seems ridiculous, I'm, you know, I'm out. And is that something we've got to be really wary of in kiting, do you think? Absolutely. I, I mean, I think one of the challenges is, is not making it a board for kind of specialists only or for that you have to be completely passionate about it. You know, it can be convenient and fun, you can walk into you know your garage and grab your board bag which has got a couple of kites and a twin tip from two or three years ago and just go out and have fun you know i mean i think that's that's where the sport needs to to get to um you know in terms of safety in terms of access reliability of equipment and that's when you're able to scale it and that's you know when you can create a lifestyle and i think you know for the longevity of 
of sports is, is actually as important as the whole lifestyle around them, not just about the, you know, about the gear or about, you know, the, the uh, what's the latest, greatest new thing um, and how's this going to make me feel better about myself. Yeah, when it's hit me in the pocket quite hard. Yeah, <laughs> it's, it's a hard thing. I mean, it's like often you tell people like, I think you're better off keeping that and taking the money you were going to spend and going and using your current equipment more going on a holiday yeah um, and getting some good dropping another 1500 bucks you know um and i think that's kind of what i think more people should do it's difficult when you're selling equipment to you know to convince people that buy something really good but and, and keep it for a while you know and really appreciate it and, because that's what we're trying to create yeah i mean that's one of your big ethoses as a company isn't it with the the, the way you build your kites and the, the techniques that you use, they're all made to make the kite last a really long time. Um, you know, and I think you were, there's other brands that are doing that, but no one's using your sort of load frame systems and things like that where you're really, you know, making that kite last a long time. And I remember when we were chatting in South Africa, I was telling you about a friend of mine, Matt in Lancelin, who bought this kite and he'd used it every day for sort of three years and when I launched it it was still kind of crispy and it wasn't misshapen or anything like that and he'd learned on it he crashed it it's in Lancelin it's boiling hot sunshine loads of UV sand using it every day it's super windy and yeah and it was a sort of testament to that ethos that you can have a product it can last you a long period of time and it can still make you happy yeah I, I 100% believe that you know that we that's just part of where I think we need to go. I mean, it's it's easy to you know, get caught up in in the latest greatest thing, but also allows us from our side as you know to do more detailed, more deep work when we do product development. You know, instead of you know you get into this thing where I watch people servicing their product ranges, where they, they spend so much time working on the new graphics and what they're gonna you know, tell people they change for next year that they actually run out of time to spend time coming up with new new ideas. And, and you know, innovation is hard. Like real innovation is, is it's a rocky path. Of, and it's, you know, there's a lot of ways to screw it up. And, it and uh, you know, so it's, I think yeah, that takes time and it takes a long-term plan. And, you know, a lot of, you know, as you, if you want to do, you know, really, you know, big step forward you need to take a long-term view and and say like this might take us three years i mean we've had we've had um design projects that have taken us three four five years and then we end up ditching them and like well that was a shitty idea yeah waste of waste of time effort money resources everything yeah and you say you you know i mean the main thing for me is that you know as a designer you can't be cynical because you're creating the future i mean that's what people pay you they're paying you to create the future so you've got to look at it this like you've got to keep on saying, well, you know, how can we create some wonderment in the world and how people go? And, and that's the most gratifying thing you can possibly do when you, you get something. You're like, what? this is really, really, really different. Not like it turns 5% better, maybe in certain condition. You know, like this is actually you know, properly different. Yeah. And, and you know, I, like you, there's kind of, I guess there's this tech washing, you know, where like, you know, people talk about game changes and, and then you go like, but what game have you actually changed? And, you know, like you're still hitting the ball around, you know? So it's like, it's something that I'm, it's difficult because as a marketeer, you know that you, you know, you, you've got to shout loudly for people to hear you. But, you know, as 
person or as a company which is essentially you know the people we hire it's like the ethos for us is like you want to be authentic but it's it's difficult in a world where authenticity is not valued yeah enough, you know so everything's about everyone's just shouting yeah <laughs> and you know and, um, so yeah it's 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 a it's a challenge but i mean within that lies you know the path to salvation is through real innovation you know and that's so you've got but that's like i said that's fucking hard yeah it's, like, it's not you can just come up with something and everybody and i guess as the sport keeps changing you know it's probably i was one thing i love about kiting is you can do so much with it you know originally it started off and i loved it because i didn't have to carry my windsurfing gear around and i had two kites and a twin tip and i could fit it in a you know a holder with a small kite ball bag and just take it on a plane and rent a small car and go anywhere with it and then surfboards came along and it was like okay now i'm well it's not quite a windsurf board but my luggage is a little bit bigger and then right now hydrofoils are here and suddenly it's like well i've got three kites hydrofoil surfboard twin tip lugging that around the world it gets a bit crazy and that must make it harder to innovate in those spheres when you know you perhaps don't get more staff involved and things like that because suddenly you're not just designing kites and boards you're designing kites boards surfboards hydrofoils all the other bits and pieces that go with it like the foot straps the foot pads and things like that is that difficult to keep on top of to sort of well i mean that range it's, of product i think yeah i think uh I think steve jobs said you got to say no to a million things so you know like for us it's it's just about not you know we we're really trying to concentrate on what we're doing and and you know we're also just not getting too sidetracked and uh into a million things and and but that's always challenging when I'm interested in so much stuff, you know, like, and, and essentially I, I think if you, you just got to zoom out a little bit and, and people used to say like, don't you, don't you miss windsurfing? And I said, not at all, because I'm doing exactly the same thing. I go down to the beach with a piece of foam and a piece of cloth and I get dragged around for an hour and then I go home and I get a huge amount of thrill out of it. And it's really, you know, and, and I see, you know, like now with the, the you know, with the wings, and I'm like, well, that's just another piece of cloth. Yeah, and on another bit of foam. Yeah, another bit of foam. <laughs> and we're getting dragged around. around. And, and the question is, is that a better machine? You know, you know, is a kite a better machine? I mean, for me, essentially, I look at, you know, those machines and going like, well, you know, they're good for certain things. And and you've also got to be careful not to paint yourself into a corner because, you know, an evolution in one place or an innovation somewhere leads to innovation somewhere else. I think wings are a great example where. You know, six years ago we built this wing thing and we thought it was kind of cool but then we were going backwards and forwards and i was like you needed so much wind and it was stupid when you had a massive board and threw it away and then you know then all of a sudden then um you know then hydrofoils come along yeah and they mean that you need way smaller you know way, way less drive and then, then so you know, that that's a typical example of of you know innovation in one area of the sport will completely change changing the innovation something. in another area so it's yeah. all kind of linked i yeah. think that's almost like with the surf foiling because we had hydrofoils i mean it's the whole hydrofoiling thing in kiting is really strange it, it it almost started backwards it started with ridiculous race wings because it was the frenchies just wanting to go really fast so when i learned five years ago it was almost impossible on this you know stupid foil that you're learning on and then we kind of, as a sport, took a step back and realized that you need to make more beginner wings and things like that. And then when surf foiling came along, suddenly the wings are as big as this coffee table. And then that suddenly means that actually you don't have to be an expert Kyleni to get up. You can, you know, get up quite comfortably on something like that. And it kind of, you know, that development, I think, is, is a good thing for then 
the wings to come along because you're seeing guys down here who maybe they haven't foiled that much they've done a little bit and they're suddenly up and getting a smile on their face from getting dragged around with a bit of cloth and a bit of foam yeah with something that like you say six years ago wouldn't have worked because all the wings were tiny like rulers you know they were just tiny little race machines and that was it um so it's good to see that kind of innovation and change in the sport i think which is an interesting you know way for it to go and chatting some people on the beach yesterday and we're looking at all the people with the wings and we're like do you think in five years time we'll look at these photos and go how ridiculous was that because they'll have changed immeasurably in their shape and concept a little bit like kite surfing did when that first started and you had the Whippaker Classic and two line kites and you know when I first saw kiting I remember looking at my mate Chris Calthrop he brought the first one back to the UK and I was like that's never going to catch on that's just stupid you're you're swimming you're swimming in everything's tangled up looks rubbish and then the next year he'd kind of got the hang of it and I was like oh that actually looks all right so I wonder if we're in that same sort of evolution of development with the wings and it's going to go in the same direction which probably arguably with all the tinkerers in the sport it will do I think. Well the challenge for me is the constraints like if you so if you're designing a product then it's always like what are the broader constraints on the product you know like when you you know if you look at say a windsurfing rig where the constraints are, are weight you get to a point where we've you know we've made rigs incredibly lighter um but you just mechanically you get to like mechanical constraints and and one of the challenges when i look at the wings i'm like at the moment like you hit like four and a half square meters and you you hit uh what's it a geometric constraint where like most people's arms are about yay high off the yeah. ground and so and it's just hitting the so water. like the challenge from you know when you're looking at the product is like what are the constraints of the product and and the fundamental design is like what problem does this solve yeah. you know so you have to ask yourself that and and sometimes you know that, that essentially defines a, a gimmick you know or a trend in the site you know we'll I've always look at it as a designer where you know, people say like this new bottom shape and it's like this is the biggest innovation and then I always say well the only way you already know is in five years is if everything looks like that or at least yeah a portion of stuff looks like that so it's you know it's it's an interesting way of viewing things and some innovation is obvious um, and and others are you know it's like you know if you take evolutionary theory it there's not one way of doing something. You can see that in evolution. It's clear. Like you look at how different all the living beings are within the same environment and they all evolve differently. So and that's that's everything we do. Everything we do is about evolution, really. Um, yeah, so that, I mean, who knows? Who knows? <laughs> it's a definite watch this space, isn't it? It's been interesting chatting to people that have had a go of it as well. Some people sort of love it. Other people really anti it. And other people just don't get it at all. So it's... Yeah, I don't think kiting's got much to worry about. I think the fact that our sport is so refined at the moment and we have so much diversity, I think that, you know, kiters are going to be kiting for a lot, a long time still. But then when we were windsurfing back then, we said that about kiting, like, yeah, windsurfing will be fine. <laughs> It'll be all right. And then it very much wasn't fine. Well, I wonder how much of it is style, you know. So one of the things for me, like I'll joke with my friends around, about wings and say, well, anything where you got to get into your knees is not good, you know. Yeah. Like when I'm surfing and I see an SUP guy on his knees on his paddling, knees. and yeah. I'm like, that's not a not cool, cool. That's not a good look. I don't want to be that guy. Um, which is, um, and then you wonder, then you think back into how geeky people looked when they're learning how to kite. But then you take sports like inline skating, you know, and just be from a fashion side, from the, you know, it was <laughs> always questioning. He's like, you know, is this the next inline skating? 
Um, yeah, because that died a horrible death. Well, there's it? still a whole bunch of people in landscape. There are still I'm like sure. Hannah Whiteley yeah. still in landscape, which yeah. just blows me away because she puts pictures up and I'm just like, whoa, you're still skating. Like, and in the park, and she's really good at it. You know, yeah. she kills it on a half pipe on her inline skates, but it's the only person I know that does. Um, but yeah, it's a case in point, isn't it? You never know what's going what's gonna to blow up, what's going to fad out, and where things are going to end up. Yeah. I guess all we can do is hope that kiting's still around for a long time and we're still in, in a job. <laughs> well, I think it's a good machine. That's that's the fundamental when I look at it. I think as as far as machines go, it's like hydrofoils. Like that's you know they're like just fundamentally, you see them as being good machines. It's the same with kites. It's like there's you know, there's a lot we can do. Um, there's a lot that they there's a lot of places they can go. Um, so yeah, I do think they have a they'll always have a place. You know? Do you think there's much room for more kite development moving forwards? Where do you see the direction of that side of things going? Well, I mean, you know, just before we made the, the ultra, like one of the things for from from my perspective is, you know, that a lot of development is what we feel obvious. So like, and what we do when we hire designers, like one of my favorite questions for a designer is like, what is a sport going to look like in 10 years? You know, whatever, if he's a surf product designer, if he's whatever, he, you know, and... And it's it's a really interesting question because then you know it's it like that's what we call obvious design. So like yeah. that means if you use like you know like are things going to be stronger? And you say like obviously they're going to be stronger. We're not going to make shit weaker. You know like you know and then things are going to be lighter. And you're like probably things are going to be lighter. You know so there's these these like obvious uh, sides to design. Um, and then what problems are we going to solve? You know it's like those are the you know essentially designs about solving problems. So like you just isolate, you know, safety problems, you know, um, access problems like stability, relaunch, you know, like those are all essential problems. You know, there's, you know, like, I mean, if I had to say to you, what do you think kites are going to look like in 10 years? Like, what problems are we going to solve? What, what springs <laughs> to mind for you? Uh, that's a good question. I'm not a product designer. I think um, stability in high winds is still something that, needs to be looked at i think some brands are better than others at that but some kites you know when we're testing kites and things like that some of them you're just like yeah this just doesn't feel super stable i think the weight factor is an interesting one at the moment because a lot of people are like going down the weight side of things like ocean rodeo with their alula project and i know duotone are working on something and i'm sure other people are but for me as a kiter i don't really mind kiting unless it's over 10, 12 knots, because a mountain bike, motorbike, mm. you know, surf, sup, whatever, there's other things I can do. But I get that there's a lot of kite surfers who, when they first come into the sport, they're so addicted to it that all they want to do is kite. And that's exactly what happened to me when I got into it. It was just like, right, sod that, give up the job, give up everything, you know, split up with my girlfriend, I just want to go kiting, that's all I care about. Mm. And so for that person who's probably your peak customer, because I was the guy going in the shop, spending on my credit card all the time you've got to look at ways where they can kite in all conditions yeah and you know i think one of the issues that we've got at the moment we've just had three people die in the uk which is terrible um but i don't think that's necessarily an equipment problem i think it's an education problem but also you know making the the equipment work in those kind of high-end conditions but work to a safer standard well the flip side for me then would be i mean I'm, I'm a big believer in weight like i mean that's where the ultra came from you know from foiling saying well if we make the kite lighter um you know then then uh it can fly in less wind um and yeah so 
from my side, from a safety side of thing, for example, if we make the kites more efficient, then you can just use a smaller kite and then that's, it's, then that's, that's inherently it, safer. Inherently safer. Um, so like I'm, you know, for me, like I think it was yeah, three or four years ago, I said, well, let's try to half the weight of the kites. Like that was a design objective for us as a team. Yeah. Um, and that's, you know, that's what led to the development of the Ultra. Um, so that, you know, we kind of did that to, to drive the firstly light wind performance, but there's also things like drift. Um, you know, when you, when you wave riding, you want the kite to drift and yeah. the lighter the kite is, the better it drifts. Yeah. So, um, the better the light wind performance. Um, yeah, the, those are all really the things that you benefit from when you, when you're pushing lightweight. Yeah. It makes a difference. It's interesting how the the kites have got so much lighter. Um, and so much better, you know, and then that does mean you can go out in light winds. And for these people that are totally frothing, you know, I'm a member of a, a local WhatsApp group where I'm living now and I've only just joined it and seeing them talk about the other day when it was, you know, going to be 55 knots mm-hmm. and they're all talking about where they're going to go kiting. And I'm like, are you mental? Like, why are you going kiting in 55 knots? None of you have got equipment that I would want to take that risk of taking out in that, you know, yeah. Ruben kites in these winds, but he knows exactly how many hours he spent on that bar and lines. He knows exactly how many hours he spent on that kite. And if it's a really big day, he'll make sure he's got a kite that's only had a couple of hours on it. So he knows it works, but also it isn't going to break. And they were like, oh, oh, yeah, okay. Well, we're still going kiting, you know, and I know they've got three, four year old equipment that's shady at best. And then in the same flip side, when there's hardly any wind, they're all talking about where they want to go kiting. So I think that's your sort of market of, those sort of ends of the spectrum, I guess, in making the equipment good for, um, you know, people so they can get out in lighter winds, which is obviously where the lighter kites and things like the Ultra come from. But also overhead stability. I mean, there's spots where, you know, I, I live in a place called Scarborough in, in Cape Town, and it's horrible. Like, you, you launch on the beach, and it's it's 15 knots, and then it's 35 knots, you know? And so, like, you, you know, you build a kite lighter, and the overhead stability is much better. Um, that That's a big... You know, for me, that's a big plus. Um, so, you know, I, I do, you know, on, on the weight side, that's, you know, for me, championing that is, you know, a lot of the times, like how the kite, you know, how it just climbs right at the edge of the window, you know, how the kite yeah, just manages we'll to just climb out of yeah, it, it doesn't matter, you know, even if it's, if it's windy, you know, you still have that benefit. The kite can go a little further. So it, it is definitely a, you know, a component that I think has, has got value. Um, and then, of course, you got to balance that with strength. I mean, yep. for us people, like we, we built, we had built lighter kites, but then we we're always going back to, yeah, we can take the load frame off, that makes it lighter, now we want to keep it on. You know, so like, it's not purely about lightweight. Yeah. You know, that, that's, you know, in the evolutions of the fabrics, you can see, again, you know, as we move to materials like laminates, then durability is going to become an issue, you know, so like, what level of durability do people expect? Yeah. You know, so like, but those are going to be the, the the technical challenges that we you know we need to overcome if we keep pushing, you know, keeping the weight and then improving the performance and yeah. the, you know the the, the strength. Yes, it's always a compromise, isn't it? You can't just make the lightest product in the world that then only lasts four sessions. Absolutely, because not. you know that's yeah. just counterproductive yeah. to the whole planet <laughs> ecosystem. You know, it's got to be stuff which which lasts a long time, which is probably, you know, the other thing I really wanted to chat to you about was the whole sustainability of things. And, you know, when we spoke um, in Cape Town recently and, you know, you were telling me about the ethos and that's why you make products that last a long time because 
you don't want people buying a new kite every year and you want those kites even if they are buying a new kite every year they can be sold second hand and last you know three four years safely and and confidently and that's had a good product life cycle but there's a lot of other things that you do as a brand as well isn't there to try and yeah reduce i mean this, your footprint the sustainability side is uh, you know the, the weird thing is like probably quite well known for it as a brand and it's it's always a dilemma because it's not even really something that we want to push in marketing because for us it's it's like just good social responsibility it's like you know do normal you, behavior <laughs> <laughs> but if you want to be a nice guy like you don't run around trying to telling everybody you're the nice guy you know it's like it's more just something that i think we should do anyway and something that we try to share with everybody that we are we doing and um yeah i think that there's a lot you know that i mean that's to be honest, it's something out of my personal life that I'm, I'm very interested in, and I try to transfer that into you know what I, I love and what I do for business. Um, and you know, the sustainability has a lot of you know a lot of avenues that I think I think is something we just all need to address. And you know, it's um, and I, I think it's actually good for you, you know, like as for your soul, like yeah, to have something sure. like to you know, there's like a simple thing is if we all just left the planet one percent better than when we started. You know, we wouldn't, I mean, that's, you don't have to become this crazy, you know, eco warrior, you know, strap yourself to the front of a bulldozer. <laughs> um, it's, you know, it's more about just being a good citizen, you know. Yeah, socially and, responsible yeah. and conscious about what you're doing with your rubbish, what you're consuming, yeah, what you're chucking into the food chain, into the sea. And, and, and uh, you know, I think that's, that's going to be the big, you know, the big, uh, change in, in this generation where you know and, it, and it's like i think there's, there's a famous quote that that by the time you've you know that basically the it becomes irrelevant yeah by the time it, you know once everybody's changed and then, then it's no longer a thing a thing you know and i think that's what i hope to see in my lifetime is that people don't keep focusing on this sustainability and i mean for me sustainability is also about business it's about people's lives it's about the sport about creating social events and for me sorting you know supporting these events um and and you know events um you know like in in the in the uk you have a you know really really good um you know kite armada festival yeah. and it's like that's good that's builds a sustainable industry you know so like and i just think it's about you know trying to make a small part in people's lives you know there's so many people that are so connected to kiting and, and using it as a platform for for like change yeah is, for positive yeah, change is a is, good thing even in the smallest way you know is, it's a it's a great thing to do and i mean that's also one of the reasons we have our company in cape town is because i would be in australia and i go like you know there's not really you know they're kind of on their path and whereas in in, in south africa you see the desire for change is huge and you see and that's that's amazing it's amazing to see that it's amazing to be part of that and from an environmental side you know we work with people like Palais and and uh, we do a carbon offset program you know we do you know, we try to have a completely off-grid office for summer we we don't draw any power from you know that's that's just fun you know yeah. it's it's really interesting and and I also believe in doing it in a way that you don't you know that you don't need to be a martyr yeah you, know? you, you can have a good life and you can travel you can do things and you just got to see you know how we because that's how we get people involved when you know they realize that it's actually easy and fun and there's a lot to it as well isn't there i mean you have to you know i think we were chatting and you were saying something about that you can shrink wrap a kite 
in plastic or you can ship a kite not shrink wrapped but you know because you're not using the plastic the kite takes up more volume and therefore you can fit less kites on a container and therefore you have to use twice as many containers and therefore it's almost more economically viable that people recycle the plastic you know and think you know there's little there's little yeah there's some well, like exactly that, and, that, and that's why it's, how... it becomes such a delicate issue you know because yeah. people are well you're still you know but then you're flying there and then you and and there's so there's so much to it yeah you know, even you know you hear brands counter arguments say well that's why we build products you know say in portugal and then you go well but you know if you see freight from china or you rode freight from portugal to germany you have a similar kind of similar yeah, footprint and it's around 5% of the product or 6 or 7% you know so there's 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 good science out there you know but um as you know with some of the people even running the countries is they kind of don't look at the science because it's you know it's, it's too glaringly obvious yeah, for them to rather ignore yeah, or, it or you know so or people see it as an agenda you know if you have an agenda and and that's also been for us to try to share you know if we find a material supplier then you know we said like oh, this is where we're buying 100% recycled polyester from and doing that through the GKA just like you know, the, the industry association being able to share good practices yeah is is a very cool thing yeah that's a positive thing if you find a good supplier or something that's going to make things a little bit greener you can then through the GKA say to all the brands right this is who we should be using to reduce our footprint and reduce things a little bit that's a really positive yeah i mean course. for me sustainability is one of our, our pillars as a business but it, it's not about it's not competitive advantage for us no it's like that yeah that would be share it yeah. wherever you can and going back to you know when we started at the beginning you were talking about enjoying tinkering with things and being a maker and a doer having visited your um head office in Cape Town you've got all these amazing tools to you know you can make prototypes right there you could got 3D printers i think when i was there you were making a harness which you've just launched here the shadow harness and mm-hmm. you had sort of an early prototype of it that you've been building there is it kind of you know still like your dream job that you're going to work every day and you're in this almost a toy shed of things where you can get involved and make things or do you find now that you're sitting at the business end of it more and you have less time to get your hands dirty and be creative yeah i mean that's that's a, it kind of depends how long i do the one thing for that it makes me think i should be spending more time on the other thing but yeah i mean ultimately it you know like a, for us the company is a launch pad you know so it's about like-minded individuals it's about you know for a, us we're also passionate about graphics and art and stuff so like the nice thing at my level is I'm able to be involved i mean and also able to communicate what we're doing to people which is also important um but i do miss like if you know for me my my peaceful places is you know if i have an idea and and i'm actually not really that much of a maker i mean i have people working with me who are great craftsmen and for me it's a lot about just seeing if it's going to work yeah. you know like so it's you know in terms of as an organization there's 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 people in the organization who take more pleasure out of you know those resources than i do because for me essentially those resources are just the means to an end you yeah. know to say like how can we uh, you know how can we make this evolution how can we improve that and and uh, that's so yeah that that's i i really enjoy that connection um within that uh still you know sometimes just build something quickly myself um you know when people tell me it's not going to work that's uh, what that's you like to yeah it then how did the delta foil wing work out that you posted on facebook that i saw which was for it's hard to explain but basically it didn't have a rear wing it was just a 
a kind of delta shaped front wing, wasn't it? The yeah, that, single single wing idea. <laughs> yeah, well, that's, I mean, so like I believe a lot in something called biomimicry, where you, you know, it's a study of nature and, and how things work, and and so it's not a completely um, stupid idea, I don't think, you know. Um, but we've got to, you know, there's a lot of work that needs to go into it, and you know, sometimes. Um, Again, go back to evolutionary theory. There's something called a random leap, where you, you know, you take these big leaps into development. So there's two paths in development. You know, one's revolution, one's evolution, and so we'll be trying to evolve the current foils. Yeah. And then we'll be, you know, when we have some time, do something you know, completely out. Going well, like and see what you know, see like what happens. Put, put the small wing in the front, the big wing in the back, like you know, and the, do stuff like which again, you know, there's people who've done it, and then. You know, that that's something that we will try to do, relative as, as often as we can. I mean, normally it's got to be based on good science. Yeah, know? before you start throwing money at the problem and <laughs> yeah. So you, I mean, normally the like the, your good designers will say you've got to have a hypothesis, and then you've got to either prove it or disprove it, either to yourself or to <laughs> your, the masses, your peers. <laughs> you know, um, so that that's and you know that for us is like having that design culture. Is, is something that I feel makes our company relatively unique, like in that we build things. You know, we really come from that old school product design culture where it's like, if you have an idea, make a rough concept, see if it works, go to the next iteration as quickly as possible. You know, that, that's like really you know, product design fundamentals that, yeah. that you know, sometimes maybe get lost. And just keep going through that process until yeah. you get to the the end game yes and there's some great guys doing it you know there's, there's a guy I think was Sam Coleman from yes. Ride Engine you know like you know kind of you know just you meet young guys like that and they, they have that you know they have even more of that and you're like wow that guy's so smart you know where he's like got really good ideas and, and uh, you know he just like looks at things differently and like that's so inspiring to see people come into the industry from you know taking a fresh view yeah, um, and you actually need that fresh blood to come in and then shake things up or have a different idea. I mean, Coleman, what he did with the hard shell harness, you know, he was banging away with that for a while and yeah. no one was really into it and he was taking people's back moulds left, right and centre and yeah. shipping a few custom harnesses around and then now it's, you know, every pretty much every brand in the industry has a hard shell harness. Yeah, well, it's funny because he's... he's um, intelligent enough that you can argue with him about it. I'm, I'm like, I don't believe in hard shells. And then we end up having a one hour conversation about that, you know, and then, uh, um, which, you know, like, so that, uh, that's that's the dynamic that, that it would be nice to see it exist a bit more in the industry and that you do see it from time to time. And I think that's cool. A valuable thing to happen. Yeah. Awesome. So where's next for you, Clinton? Back to South Africa or? Uh, from now, then we go, go to Kartmasters in, in Germany. Okay, so, yeah. yeah St. So Peter Ording. Um, yeah, go there for a few days and see how, you know, how we're presenting the products to customers. Um, yeah, we also do these destination store concepts where then uh, we'll do that. We have another uh, destination store in Tarifa. Yeah. And that's a, quite a unique retail concept for us because what we're trying to do is have an immersive experience where people don't walk into a store and get exposed to five million different brands. Different it's brands just literally AK and Airrush. And, uh, and you know, so that's something, you know, we did that, uh, we've done that with Second Wind in, in uh, Hood River and that's been cool because then we can, you know, people walk into the store, they can see every product that we make and they can have an interaction with with staff who are involved in the brand, you know, they understand what we do and, and uh, 
you know, Pepe from Second Wind comes and tests stuff with us and, and you know, he helps drive the brand. And I think that's that's something that we've been trying to do. And so I'll try to launch within those stores and we'll do that in, in Tarifa in Spain with, with Alex and then do it in Cape Town. You know, so we'll go through those. Um, that That's pretty much the next month for me is yeah. trying to communicate to people what we've what we've done um, and then back to Musenberg for the winter and then yeah go home and then it will start again next year <laughs> well we've already we're already well into the development yeah, the cycle as well you know so um, yeah so we, we like and then kind of pushing that along and then try not to leave Cape Town for six months you know yeah I guess that's the beauty of being in Cape Town is you've got a very good excuse to stay there during that time because Europe's not really very pleasant place to be North America's not a very pleasant place to be and you've got so many people now going there it's almost become the epicenter of kiteboarding for the for the whole scene really I mean you know it's everyone who's anyone is there at some point during the winter so it's a good place to base yourselves yeah so it's very lucky to to have that have that change you know I I mean for me I think Hood River has that and I mean I love coming here to be honest with you it's energizing you know Hood River so now I go to Tarifa and it's it's great. And then I see, you know, you get like these different snapshots of the, the way people ride in these different areas. It's super exciting. And do you get much time to kite when you're doing these trips or when you're at home? Are you still managing to get on the water a lot? And, you know, yeah, I mean, I, I, like I still have a, a you know, we, a, my own design portfolio of products I'm responsible for. You know, so like I will, and then I'll still go out and test them and I'll try to, as much as possible, test with DK or with Pato, you know, the, kite and the board designers like on their products to you know where I can um, so yeah I do I do try to test you know ride and pretty much every second day is kind of my you know my time my, to get on the water time to get on the water so like yeah that I, I'll go and even if I go for 45 minutes and I'm just stoked you know so that's, I do yeah you know, that I mean that's kind of why we do it as well yeah that is it's why we why we do it because we're all passionate about it and at the end of the day, like you said, it's getting dragged around by a bit of cloth on a bit of foam and having some fun, isn't it? Yeah. That's what it's all about. Clinton, that was awesome. Yeah, cool. Thank you very Thank much you for very that. Much. There we have it. Episode 13, Done and Dusted. I really hope you enjoyed that one. I actually appreciated taking the time to listen back to it again because I do find Clinton to be one of the most interesting people in the industry. Certainly some of the ideas he's had um, around the water sports that we all enjoy as leading us down some interesting paths and some of the developments that he's made for the sport have pushed the sport in interesting directions as well. So I enjoyed sitting down with Clinton. Not sure who I'm going to do next. I'm going to look through the bank and see how the recordings have come out. I've got a couple that I recorded in airport lounges, so we'll see how the sound is on those. But I'll um, I'll go through the archives and see what I can dig out for you. As ever, please give these a like and a share online if you're a member of any groups or any WhatsApp things or anything like that where you think people might enjoy listening to these. Please tell them and share these because that makes a big difference to me. If you want to give it five stars on the App Store, that's fantastic as well. And just give me any feedback that you have about any upcoming issues. So there we have it. Thanks for listening to me, Rue Chater and the Intriguing Beings podcast.